Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek Ministry Watch extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep on a particular topic or perhaps with a newsmaker. And today, I'm delighted to have on the program Stephen Mansfield. Stephen Mansfield has written more than 20 books, but he first came to wide attention in 2003 because of his book, The Faith of George W. Bush, which made the New York Times bestseller list. His books on Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Winston Churchill have focused on the faith of leaders and the impact that their faith has on their public life. I wanted to have Stephen on the program because of his unique insights into how faith impacts leadership, but in particular, I wanted to talk with him about an essay that he wrote in 2019 when Billy Graham passed away. It was an essay that talked about an important meeting that took place at the very beginning of Billy Graham's career that allowed him to lead a life of integrity and to finish his life and ministry scandal-free. Given the scandals that we've been facing in the church today, I think it's a message that is timeless and we need to hear again. Stephen Mansfield, welcome to the program. And I I wanted to talk to you about an article that actually you originally wrote a couple of years ago uh, about Billy Graham. I think, in fact, you might have written it when he passed away. And uh, the the article was about a very important meeting that he had uh, with some of his top lieutenants in the late 1940s that really set the tone for his ministry. But the reason I wanted to have you on the program to talk about it is because, of course, here at Ministry Watch, we write a lot lot about, you know, pastors and others involved in scandal. And I thought your article really addressed those issues beautifully and kind of helps us see, uh, those of us who are in ministry, how we can not only live well, but finish well in our ministries as well. Well, I'm excited to talk about it because, of course, Billy Graham was just an exemplar for all of us. Uh, of ministry integrity, and it came out of some commitments he made, as you say, in 1949. So uh, I'm excited to dive into it with you. Well, the, those commitments were multifold, and I'd like to kind of take them in order and uh, let you kind of expound on them a little bit. Uh, number one was financial accountability, that they committed themselves from a very early stage, really before they had very much money, uh, to this notion of financial accountability. Say more about that and why it's so important. Well, I'm happy to but let me set up the context really quickly. Uh, Billy Graham had conducted a crusade in LA in 1949, and it had become massive, one of the largest ever in American history. And so he could see the handwriting on the wall. There was going to be lots of attention, lots of money. The Hearst Papers, as we all know, famously promoted that revival, that that crusade, and made much of it worldwide. So uh, in a kind of a prescient moment, Billy Graham and his team realized that they were going to be dealing with some huge forces that were wonderful, but could also crush them if they didn't handle them with integrity. And as you say, the the, the main one was financial issues and financial propriety. Uh, He had seen, as we all have seen, money crush ministry. Uh, He had seen it mishandled. He had seen crusades or meetings and events that looked mainly to be about the money. 
Um, and so he said, look, we're going to handle it in a different way. One of the one of the real important things he did, which may not seem that radical now, but was at the time, uh, is that his team took salaries. What they didn't do is go to a town, take up offerings, and then, you know, split the offerings like a bunch of mafiosos splitting the loot from a heist. Uh, what they did was they decided they would all take salaries. So this removed a sense of the pressure about offerings. This removed the sense of the nervousness and the overemphasis on offerings that some ministers exhibited. Uh, if I if I live and die, if I rise and fall financially based on the offerings, well, I might be tempted to be more dramatic on stage. I might be tempted to take up two offerings. I might be uh, tempted to preach a lot about giving when maybe that's not the heart of the gospel, uh, as important as it is. So that was one of the first things they did. The second thing they did, since they were out of towners, so to speak, they were coming into a town to do crusades, is that they uh, created committees of the local leaders and local clergy uh, but in this case, regarding money, specifically local bankers and businessmen, and they would handle the money. So in other words, the ministry team wouldn't come in, uh, conduct a big crusade and take the money out of town and leave. They would use local groups. And I, I need to say, by the way, I was a pastor years ago. I worked with the Billy Graham crusade in Nashville that became quite well known. And they did it beautifully. The first thing they did was send advanced teams in. And the advanced teams were largely about creating teams and committees in the locality so that those that the local bodies ran the crusade, so to speak, at least in terms of uh, at the community level. And so it was very powerful and very beautiful to see. And this, of course, rescued uh, the Graham team from a lot of the excesses that that crushed and destroyed other ministries and gave the gospel a black eye, if that's if that's actually possible. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I understand that. And, and, you know, it really was an amazing innovation, you might say, uh, because so many of these uh, sort of the sawdust trail preachers, the Elmer Gantries of the world, were, uh, so I, they would sometimes, as you said, take multiple offerings in an evening. If they didn't get enough money, they'd take more and uh, it, uh, more offerings. So it really was a, an amazing innovation. The you, I'm going to take your... Uh, um, your four items a little bit out of order, Stephen, because you've already kind of alluded to one of them that I want to go ahead and get to. And that is this idea of encouraging Christian unity. You mentioned that when you were involved in the crusade in Nashville, that they reached out to you, they had an advanced team, that they were very intentional about um, engaging folks from across denominational lines. Um, can you say a little bit more about that second aspect of uh, this important meeting that the Graham team uh, had in 1949, and it ultimately became one of the principles that guided their ministry. I'm happy to. It was very, very impressive, not just in Nashville, but in terms of what happened uh, nationwide, worldwide. Now, think about it. Billy Graham's team is made up largely of Baptists and Presbyterians. So you would expect them to lean evangelical. You would expect them to lean to those denominations. But they really wanted to accomplish Christian unity. So two things happened that were really beautiful and powerful to watch. Uh, one was they reached across lines. So if you go back and look at photographs of Billy Graham's crusades, you'll see a, a bishop or an archbishop on stage in his uh, religious robes. Uh, you'll, you'll see Catholic clergy. You'll see Anglican clergy, Episcopal clergy. Um, you'll see people of other types. Uh, as part of that, Billy Graham also reached across racial lines. So that may not sound like I'm answering your question, but but often these were religious lines in a community. You know, the black Baptist would be on one side of the tracks, so to speak. The white Baptist on the other side. Denominations had been split since the Civil War, Northern, Southern Baptist, for example. And so 
the Billy Graham crusade people reached across those lines. The other thing that really impresses me is that when he had received criticism from clergy in the area, he or one of his people would contact that person, arrange a meeting, and then invite that person to be on stage. So, so often while he's preaching to the crowd, some of the clergy behind him are ones whom he hopes to win, but hasn't maybe won yet, but ones who had criticized him and then been invited to be on stage. Hey, come watch what we do. Come see it from a bird's eye perspective. I think that's unbelievably impressive. It shows real character, real confidence in the Lord, by the way, um, and a willingness to you know, win your critics. I'd let the critics be the unpaid guardians of your soul. And I can tell you as a man who's written some history about the Billy Graham organization and crusade that every so often they got some criticism that actually uh, hit a target, uh, hit, hit a mark. And it didn't just sting. It made them say, hey, we probably need to change what we're doing. This guy's probably right about the way something was handled or the way we spoke or, or the way we handled the crowd or what have you. So, or maybe in one case, it was the songs that were chosen. Um, they did they did it a crusade once the battle hymn of the republic. Well, not everybody was happy about that, you know, since that tends to be a north-south issue from the Civil War. So they they addressed those issues. And so all of this was about creating and promoting Christian unity. And uh, I think we see that he did that in his wake. In fact, I'll just have to say that uh, it, when the history of both racial relations and Christian unity is written uh, in terms of the 20th century, uh, we'll see, if I think from greater distance, that Billy Graham was one of the primary champions of both of those. Well, I think you're absolutely right. You know, Billy Graham got a lot of criticism, especially from the more fundamentalist side of the Christian world uh, for what they uh, uh, called, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a ecumenism or ecumenism might be a better way to pronounce that word, that they uh, criticized and didn't think was appropriate. But um, my experience with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is that despite the fact that they reached out across doctrinal and denominational lines, they themselves held very strongly, carefully uh, to an orthodox, biblical, Christian understanding of the world and essentially said, come, uh, you, you know, we're not going to change who we are and what we do, but if you want to be a part of it, if you want to see it, if you want to be changed by it, uh, you can come on in. It is, And uh, I love what you said about uh, bringing his critics up onto the stage. I mean, that is an incredibly biblical thing to do, right? A soft answer turns away wrath, we read in Scripture. So it was a well, great and, way and to— Well, and you put your finger on an important point. That is that a lot of conservatives believe that to build relationships across denominational lines, particularly with more left-leaning, uh, theologically left-leaning clergymen, is somehow compromised. Well, you know, I know what I believe. I'm solid on what I believe. I'm an Orthodox, traditional Christian, you know, traditional in the sense that, you know, biblical. And uh, and so it doesn't diminish me to build a relationship with a liberal churchman or someone I don't agree with. I mean, I, I've often said among crowds, look, if we sat here long enough, we would find something that everybody in the room, that each person in the room believes that no one else believes. Well, does that mean we can never be together? We can never walk together? I mean, even within local churches, there are differences of views about the end times or certain ethics. In fact, Scripture encourages that. Some people drink alcohol, some don't. Some observe some things, some don't. And so my point is that we've got to learn that unity can happen. Uh, without compromise of core issues. I mean, I'm willing to work with my, I'm a Protestant. 
I'm willing to work with my Roman Catholic friends on pro-life issues and have many, many, many times, though we are very clear about our differences of opinion. I've worked with members of the Mormon church. Am I a Mormon? No. In fact, I've written a book saying that, you know, Mormonism isn't biblical Christianity, but still I'm willing to work with my Mormon friends uh, on issues of pro-life, et cetera. So all of that to say, we've got to, we've got to learn that, that, that unity is not compromise. Well, that's right. And of course, you can't even fulfill the Great Commission. You can't evangelize unless you <laughs> hang out with at least a few people who don't agree with you, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and these able- days we're living in now, Christian unity is more essential than ever. We're just, it's not like we have to turn a blind eye to theological differences. They just don't have to be primary. I mean, you and I are having a friendly chat here. I don't know what you believe about a whole host of theological issues. You know, you don't know exactly what I believe. We know we know we are committed to the core issues of Jesus, and that allows us to move forward. If we take that attitude, we'll make more progress in this world for the gospel. Well, yeah, that makes sense to me too. All right, I'm going to do number three again. I'm taking them a little a bit out of your order that you wrote about them originally, Stephen, because I'm uh, for a reason. I want to get to talk about the so-called Billy Graham rule and the sort of sexual uh, aspect of this last. Um, this, but so let me do number uh, the third one: honesty and accuracy in reporting crowd size. In in a podcast that you did about uh, this topic, you described that kind of honesty as uh, not engaging in evangelistic uh, reporting of numbers. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like using that term, evangelistic. Uh, there is a tendency uh, among Christian, some Christians that have, has been all through history to exaggerate things, to exaggerate in PR. Um, somehow I think people have convinced themselves maybe they're serving God to overstate in some cases. Um, but Billy Graham had seen this. He had seen people have a hundred people and claimed to have literally thousands and that kind of thing. And so what he did was he decided his organization wouldn't even report numbers. The press might come and say, how many did you have tonight, Reverend? How many did you have? He wouldn't answer the question. He let the local police report the numbers. Um, This is not unlike the park police in D.C. reporting crowd size uh, when a big event happens on the mall. So the Billy Graham organization wouldn't issue any press release, wouldn't say anything, wouldn't count, had no mechanism for counting. And by the way, didn't create a sense amongst their followers that crowd size was the issue. When you fill a stadium with 70,000 people in it, what what difference does it make whether it's 67.5 or 72.3? Um, they don't they don't really care. So he just said, we're going to sidestep the whole issue. We'll let the local police decide. Um, also, they, they they maintain strict honesty in all of their PR. They would hire PR firms and absolutely charge them. You verify everything we say. Don't let anything get out. Don't let there even be an accident of numbers, an error in numbers. Double check, double check it twice. We'll pay the bills. And so when the Billy, when they were here in Nashville, I mean, they, I handled a little bit of the PR for them uh, because I have a little background in that. Um, and they, they said, well, we were thrilled to have you doing that. We trust you completely, but we will have three or four other layers of verification just because, you know, you need other eyes on it. Not because we don't trust you, but because one person can make a mistake. The second person might not catch it. Then we end up answering for that. We're going to have three or four layers. And they were very gracious about it, but they'd had decades of experience by the time they got to Nashville and they just weren't willing to have their well, you know, finely honed character and public branding for this kind of activity uh, tarnished. And they, it was beautiful the way it was done. And and by the way, something we could all learn from, we all have a tendency, you know, not accusing anyone, but we all have a tendency to, uh, you know, overstate, 
you know, I'm always reporting my weight at 20 pounds less than it actually is, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Of course, I mean that humorously. And uh, and so we, we can learn from this, but it sure served the Billy Graham ministry well and uh, gained him entree in places he might not have been welcomed otherwise because he was known as an honest man with an honest ministry. Well, uh, that's right. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll just a little aside here, Stephen. I uh, taught journalism for many years, and I would usually devote an entire class uh, period to crowd size and numbers. And we would usually talk about, for example, the million, so-called million man march in Washington, D.C., where far, far fewer than a million people actually showed up for, but because that was the name of the march, the mythology grew up that that was how many folks were there. Um, number Numbers really matter. Those, uh, those whether you're claiming the a number of salvations, whether you're claiming the number of people at a particular event, um, th- they really matter. And getting the right, uh, paying attention, um, makes a uh, statement about your own integrity, but it also makes a, a statement. It can make a political statement depending upon the context. And I think um, Billy Graham's uh, organization's understanding of how important that was, um, it might seem like a small thing, don't report crowd size, but it really uh, reflects deep wisdom in my view about what they were about and what they were trying to accomplish in the world. Well, I got to tell you, one of the things it did, both in terms of the crusade in Nashville and with their broader ministry, uh, is that it, it caused them to, to, in a sense, transcend those issues. They, in a, and they rose above numbers. It wasn't like they were trying to be too heavenly minded to be in the earthly good, that kind of old saw. Um, but it was they didn't count numbers. They knew they'd have massive crowds. They never asked. They never cared. They said, we're, we're going to impact. We're speaking to the city. Yes, there are lots of people involved. Let's move on. And I mean, it, it, they got past the issue of numbers right off the bat, which uh, and you see, given the fact they showed up a year before the crusade to begin to lay the foundation. By the time Billy Graham Kemp, nobody, not a volunteer, was asking about numbers. They were all focused on salvations, all focused on the, on the lost who would be there, uh, all focused on the follow up. That's where it needed to be. So. Uh, one of the things that the leaders listening to this need to know is that uh, people will follow what you punctuate. Uh, people will follow. Be, people will conform themselves to what you value. And if you talk numbers and money all the time, they'll be preoccupied with numbers and money. But if you talk souls, if you talk impact, if you talk systems for follow up in ministry, that's what people will invest themselves in. And that's why Billy Graham, the Billy Graham meeting here in Nashville, for example, was transformative. And this is in a city that's already Christian. Uh, for the most part, but it had a profound impact and a lasting impact to this day. Yeah, well, that's a good word. Let's move to the fo- fourth and final aspect here, uh, Stephen, and that is this uh, uh, this notion of uh, sexual impropriety. That that uh, idea, the so-called Billy Graham rule of not riding alone in an automobile with a woman or having a meal alone with um, with a female, uh, it kind of got new currency when Mike Pence became vice president of the United States, and he had followed the so-called Billy Graham rule throughout his life. And of course, when Billy Graham died, that it got resurrected in the mainstream media again. It was talked about in the mainstream media as being old-fashioned, as being dated, um, as being, um, you know, kind of fundamentalist, uh, being tone-deaf when it comes to issues of equality. Um, you have a different perspective. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, this, this really had not only preserved the Billy Graham ministry crusade team members, uh, but those who emulated it 
can stand not only in their integrity, but at the end of their lives with many times very successful ministries. I've had the privilege of being with some of the most successful ministers in this country. And I'll ask them about this. I'll say, how did you, how did you interact with the Billy Graham rule? And many of them would tear up and say that they would say, I don't have any special addictions or problems in the sexual area, but that kept me from problems over and over and over that where the same problems I saw my friends falling to. And it really was pretty simple. I mean, as, as you know, this wasn't this wasn't rocket science. Uh, first of all, they simply kept their travel plans confidential. They didn't tell any. You know, even I I only in the last couple of days here in Nashville knew where Billy Graham was staying. Um, but I was, I was not told in advance, and I was told because I needed to know, and I was asked to be completely confidential about it, not to tell anybody. So you never knew where he was staying. He never stayed alone. He was always accountable, and usually he was in a suite with other people staying there. They would, I mean, it wasn't like he was just in, a, in some luxury suite by himself on a floor nobody could get to. Um, they, he, they worked very hard, something I really believe in, to keep their wives involved. Their wives were there. Their wives were involved. Their wives spoke into the ministry. Their wives traveled with them. And they weren't just, you know, to put it sarcastically, eye candy. They weren't just there to tell all the other women to stay away. Uh, they really loved their wives and wanted them there and spoke of them and alluded to them and created a culture around them. Of, hey, my wife is active and involved here. Uh, no ministry staff would be hired uh, who might be near uh, the top folks with that the wives weren't involved in those hires. So it was understood. The wives are people of authority. The wives are people to be respected. And I've watched in D.C. a different approach. Uh, where the congressman's staff can also almost get a little animosity towards the wife, of a, almost see them as the enemy of the of the, of the congressman or senator's agenda. Uh, but the wives were made central. It was very, very beautiful. Um, uh, another thing that was really, really important uh, was the idea that you uh, held each other accountable. And that, that, that sounds light, but, you know, if you're working together, how are you doing on porn? Uh, how how is your soul doing when it comes to lust? Um, wouldn't they, be, they wouldn't ask each other too detailed a question about their bedroom life uh, with their wives, but you know, is everything happy? Are you are you satisfied? Are you are you guys healthy in the physical area? They would ask each other those questions because we all know that I can I, you know I may have a guy next door in the room next door uh, in in a suite in a nice hotel, but I can still turn on HBO porn or happen buy it accidentally and then get trapped by it. So they would ask each other those questions. And, and that that was unbelievably important. And of course, all of that led to the what I call now the Graham Pence rule, um, which is they would never meet alone with a woman. Right. And this this is, has been made, especially with Mr. Pence, a man I admire. Uh, it has been made to sound weird and odd and like he would run out of the room in terror uh, if a woman sat down at the table. Not at all. Um, it's just a matter of not being alone with a woman. He had female staffers, he had secretaries. He just wouldn't go to a lunch alone with them. Wouldn't be in a hotel room alone with one, even for business. Wouldn't travel in a car alone with one. In other words, there was never any time that could be questioned. There was never any time where somebody had to say, well, now you were alone with her. What happened? Kind of attitude, because there were five other people there or three other people there or what have you. Uh, and so there was instant accountability. And um, you know, we buried this man not too long ago with great honor. And the, uh, of all the reporting, there were people who didn't like him. There were people who didn't believe his message. There were people who thought he, uh, you, you know, helped turn the country right word or what have you. But not one person said there was ever any ethical impropriety. Uh, and I, I scanned that media carefully, watched the burial, all of that. So 
I think this is what we want. We all want to come to the end of our lives of leadership and not have anything said that we ever misbehaved, that we ever compromised the gospel, that we ever harmed lives, that we ever turned our ministries into abuse factories in any way. Um, and we're, we're, we've seen the opposite recently, and we've seen the devastation of it. So I don't mind going a little old school with Billy Graham these days. I think we need it. Well, I do too. And I really appreciate, uh, Stephen, you being very clear and direct about um, the way you've communicated these uh, principles, both uh, in your writings and your podcast and now here with me. Uh, we've seen so many scandals recently of, of uh, Christian ministers that um, have, have really in some ways tarnished their entire career because of not ending well. And in the case, say, for example, of Ravi Zacharias, a lot of these things have come out even after he died. And um, it's just such a tragedy for them and for their ministries and for the people around them. And um, and I guess, you know, God is so good that he can turn, uh, he can take even those terrible things and turn something good out of, uh, out of it. And uh, maybe one of the good things is, is that people like you and me will get more focused on some of these old ideas, these old school ideas, as you called them, and uh, try to recover them in our own lives and ministries. I think you're right. I have to tell you, I hang out with a lot of uh, millennial ministers and younger, and many of them have turned that way. They see the value of it. They recognize the de- the devastation. Uh, I mean, the, the tears, the grief, the loss uh, because of the Ravi Zacharias story, others like that. I mean, this has been going on all through history. Uh, but today we have greater power uh, in terms of our technology and so on, our mobility to do good. It also gives us opportunity uh, to really rapidly spread evil. And so it's, I think the younger tribe is seeing maybe some of the devastations, some of the older ministers, and they're wanting to keep it clean, keep it pure. And one of the best ways to do that is just have absolutely rigid principles that you don't wield with an angry, uh, you know, sin sniffing, chastising approach, but you just make a gentle hedge against evil that might destroy what you do. Um, I, my firm, one of the things my firm has done through the years is help fix leadership crashes. And I won't go into detail about that. Uh, we've done to the corporate level, military, et cetera. And when we, when we go in, we always try to find out what the inception was. And I'll tell you that almost every time a major leader crashes, and I'm talking about these crashes that you're that you read about in the paper, it was something small initially. You know, I just I my sec I just started having lunch at my desk, and my secretary secretary started joining us, and then we start having a glass of wine, and then and it would kind of would and eventually we ended up having sex in my office over lunchtime, and and destroyed a ministry, destroyed a business, destroyed. Well, it's always started with something small and innocent, didn't it? Alone time, closed doors, something small. So it's good for us to know. I mean, my, my, my closing illustration of this um, is, that, is that termites in secret hidden ways do far more damage in this country than tornadoes and hurricanes, far more. And yet we can't even see them. And so it's often the hidden things, the small things, the things that are behind the scenes that are doing the most damage. And we need we need to root them out. Well, that's a good word and a good word to close on. Stephen Mansfield, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate your work and I appreciate your words today. Um, God bless you and, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Ward, it's great to be with you. Thank you. That brings to a close my conversation with Stephen Mansfield. His latest book is Choosing Donald Trump, God, Anger, 
hope, and why Christian conservatives supported him. Previous books included the New York Times bestselling book, The Faith of George W. Bush. Stephen Mansfield divides his time between Nashville, Tennessee, and Washington, D.C. Before we go, I want to remind you that my book, Faith-Based Fraud, is finally available for sale to the public. Last year, we self-published an edition of 500 copies and gave them away to our donors. So thanks to the generosity of many of you, that supply didn't last long. That motivated us to find a real publisher, you might say, and Wild Blue Press out of Denver, Colorado, came alongside us, and they're bringing out a paperback, a hardback, an ebook, and audiobook versions of faith-based fraud over the next couple of weeks. The paperback and ebook versions are already available, and you can find them by going to Amazon or other online book retailers, and I hope you'll get a copy today. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.